You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So as part of LGBT History Month, we are meeting and hearing from different members of our congregation. And this week, we're going to hear from Dean. Now, Dean, um, sent, we sent a couple of emails as we were preparing this. And he sort of graciously said, you don't have to interview me at all, or you can pick out bits of my story. But when I was reading through bits of his story, I thought, you can't just take chunks out of somebody's life, because it's the culmination of all this that creates who we are, isn't it? So, and if we don't hear stories, and we don't then understand stories, and if we don't understand, then that doesn't spur us into making things change. So I wanted to make sure we have some time just to hear Dean's story. So I'm going to pose a few questions um, that generally just sort of takes us through Dean's experiences. Um, Are we on with these? Yeah, brilliant. Great. So to start off with then, just uh, tell us a little bit about where life started for you, where you grew up, and uh, what a young Dean looked like. Gosh. Um, yeah, so I was born in Bristol um, in a working class family just on the outskirts of Bristol. I had, um, I have a brother and a sister, but they were much older than me. So um, I was like an only child, but with older siblings. And um, my family was fairly poor. We didn't have a lot going on. Uh, so on Sunday afternoons, my parents used to uh, pack me off to Sunday school in a local church. Um, and I'd be kind of sent off because they wanted some time on their own, and uh, that was my experience of church. Um, But when I was about five or six, I realized that I was slightly wired differently to the other boys, and I realized this in the school playground uh, when we were playing Kiss Chase, and this was the 70s, and consent was not always (laughs) where it should be, Um, but Kiss Chase involved uh, boys chasing after girls and kissing them. And I remember thinking, oh, actually, I want to be the one who's being chased. Um, And I didn't know whether anyone else felt like that, didn't have any words for it at that age. By the age of about eight, I had those words because those were the words that were screamed at me by other children when I went out to play. So I knew what those words were and I I knew that the way that they were saying them was that they were bad words and designed to hurt me. So uh, that was my kind of experience of being a, a, a young gay child. And then you grew up into those teenage years, it can be difficult for, uh, for most people. So how, how were they for you? <laughs> um, well, I wore an armor for most of my teenage life. I wore makeup and uh, it was the 80s, so it wasn't that unusual. Um, but big hair, big makeup. Um, and I came out, and I came out at about 14, 15. And I'd heard somewhere about the age of consent But nobody had actually explained it to me. So I believed, at the age of 14 and 15, that the fact that I was gay, because the age of consent in those days was 21, I believed, I thought that I was totally illegal, that my very life was uh, against the law. So um, So I lived a kind of life where I would tell people I was 21, uh, because I thought that I would get into trouble if I wasn't, if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't 21. So I did that, um, and it was the 80s, so it was the time of AIDS, um, and it was the time of Mrs. Thatcher um, telling people that uh, being gay was very wrong, and the kind of genesis of uh, Section 28. Um, and so my, through my teenage years, I kind of had this experience of. Uh, people around me literally getting sick and dying. Um, 
And I think when I was at university and when I was 21, I went to seven funerals that year. And I didn't tell anyone because I thought that I would be in trouble for being gay and the fact that I knew these gay people and all of that. So I just didn't tell anyone that I was uh, going to, univers uh, going to uh, funerals and things like that. So it was a pretty rough time. And then after all this, you went on and trained as a teacher. <laughs> so how, how was that? Uh, teaching's great. Are there any other teachers here? Good. We're amazing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the road to becoming a teacher was quite hard. Uh, it was during Section 28, and I was told very clearly I lost a placement at a school uh, because the students found out I was gay. Um, and so I was on my teacher training, and the school basically said, we can't have you here because of Section 28, and I was basically kicked out. Uh, and I was told very, very clearly at several stages uh, that I must not ever mention the fact that I was gay, uh, and I must not ever talk about it. Um, and that was a kind of that was kind of drilled into me from uh, uh, throughout my teaching time. And during that time, I also met a bunch of Christians, um, and they seemed kind of shiny and nice, and they were into social justice and all of this stuff. And I thought these people are great, uh, and I wanted to know more, so I joined them. And they were very pleased to have me. And then very shortly afterwards, they started to say, well, you know the fact that you're gay is not something that God likes. And you know that God can change your sexuality. And I was 22. And I was just starting out in teaching. And I'd had all this experience of being gay is bad, being gay is wrong. And now somebody was saying to me, God can change that. So I believed them. And I entered into conversion therapy. And I was in conversion therapy for a very long time because it doesn't work. Um, and um, so I stayed in conversion therapy. And during that time in the church that I was in, it was very, you, you got married. Everyone got married. Uh, and I was encouraged to marry. Uh, I married a wonderful woman. She is amazing. We are still really good friends. Um, and we were married for 24 years. And there was a huge elephant in the room. And that was the fact that I was a gay man and she wasn't. And um, so we eventually got to a stage where um, we were happy in lots and lots of ways, uh, but there was just no getting over it. And I made an attempt on my life, which was, um, which was uh, obviously not successful, but obviously it kind of brought things to a head. And we had a conversation and we realized that uh, we needed to separate and we needed to uh, divorce. Uh, I was in a church at the time where divorce, probably the fact that I came out as gay was not as bad as the fact that we talked about divorce. And um, we basically, we separated and then we divorced and the friends who I'd had for all those years didn't know what to do. And so they did nothing and they disappeared. And so both my wife and I were left with no friends, no relationship, no marriage, um, and in a really, really difficult time when nobody was talking to any either of us. Uh, so it became really painful and really difficult. Um, and, it, you know, it's been hard. And when we hear stories like yours, we know this is your background, but this is not just your background. This is also who you are today. So I think sort of the last bit here is... So how are you, who are you today? How does this impact you today? And is there anything 
that people around you, that you need from other people or that you think people with perhaps a similar story might need from other people? Yeah, I think when I was, when I was growing up and uh, into my kind of uh, my years as a Christian, I used to read these stories, uh, testimony books, where people would tell their life stories. And the interesting bit was always the, the bad stuff they did before they became a Christian, and then they become a Christian and everything's great. Um, for me, that story is, we're not quite at the everything's great stage yet. So, you know, I am a survivor of long-term conversion therapy, and I recognize the damage that it's done to me and to other people who I know um, who have been in conversion therapy. And the story isn't over yet. There isn't joy yet. There isn't freedom entirely yet. But I have hope for that. So sometimes you'll see me and I will look like I want to punch somebody. Um, and that's probably because I actually do. But it's probably not you. Um, and there are certain songs I can't sing. There are certain uh, verses in the Bible I can't read. There are things that people, people come up to me and they're very kind and they say, can we pray for you? And I'm like, no, you can't, you can't, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so it's just that understanding that people who have been through conversion therapy, and I'm, you know, my story isn't, I mean, it's, it's unique to me, but it's not that, you know, it's not that unique. People who have been through conversion therapy and other traumas, they may not always play nicely. And that's one of the things I talk about quite a lot when I talk about this, uh, is that I don't always play nicely with Christians. Um, and it's not your fault. It's just you bring with you a load of stuff that makes me feel uncomfortable and hard, and it's hard. I am still a Christian, but there are times when I, um, when I really struggle with that, as everyone does, and there are times when I don't trust and I can't trust, and when Jesus seems like um, somebody who I wouldn't want to know and wouldn't want him to know anything about me. Um, but it's a road, it's a journey, and I hope for the future. So that's where I'm at right now. Thank you. It's so important hearing stories, because it's interesting hearing you say that, because I remember speaking with you over here once, and it must have been I want to punch people day, because I was a little frightened afterwards. <laughs> I'm not frightened, but I did feel a little bit like, oh, okay, like, I'll just come and sit over here. But when you hear somebody's story, then you, do, you understand, don't you? And, you? and you just go back and speak again another week, or, you know, it's really important to hear. Thank you for sharing it. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea to stand at the front and share things like that. Should we give Dean a round of applause? Thank you. <laughs> and I've uh, a short prayer here just for people with a similar story to Dean, for Dean himself, but also people with a similar story. So I'm going to pray this. If we'd like to stand, can we stand if you're able to as we pray? Because we don't know, we look around the room and we don't know where people have come from. We don't know what's going on for people. But all we can do is listen and make space and hope. I'm going to pray this. May the God of light bring light to those who are struggling to find it. May the son of healing Bring healing to those who are hurting. 
And may the spirit of peace bring peace to those who wonder if they'll ever find it. Amen. Nathan, are you ready or should we have a song first? He's ready. Do take a seat, everybody. Well, I'm glad it hasn't changed in the last five minutes because that could have been a very different talk again. Um, Usually I've got like a flashy PowerPoint and all this kind of stuff. Now I've got three bullet points on my notes app on my iPad. But there you go. Um, That's fun, isn't it? Um, Do we have the 10-minute countdown clock ready to go? Because not speaking, speaking only for 10 minutes is not that long. But I feel like I shouldn't cheat by starting before the uh, timer allows me to, uh, as I will ever be, Ellie, yes. <laughs> oh, we're off. Oh, come on. I feel like I needed a countdown. Um, I did a talk similar to this uh, in the middle of, um, so after lockdown, when we were doing the global gathering, the online church service for, um, for, I don't know how long we did that, a year or so, there was a point at which we were doing online church, but also socially distanced church in here. Did anybody come to those services where we were limited to 30 in the room and we all had to be two meters apart and all that kind of stuff? And normally what would happen is that the person who was speaking on the global gathering would kind of extend that talk a bit. They'd record it for the online stuff uh, for a Wednesday morning and then send it over to me to do all the editing bit. And then they'd extend that talk and they do that in person um, on site here on the Sunday morning. The problem was Joe Dolby. Joe Dolby leads our church in Bath, and she was one of the regular speakers on the Global Gathering. So when it was her turn, when it was her week, somebody had to write an entire talk from scratch. And we did this topic on the Global Gathering, and Joe did it and did a fantastic job. And she also did it in about 10 minutes with a little bit more preparation than I've had, though. But you should go and listen to that one because she did do a brilliant job. And I got this topic then for the Sunday morning. And so what I thought I'd do with it is I'd take a bit of a chance because... Obviously, at the moment, what we're doing is we're live streaming this on Facebook, and it'll be recorded for our podcast, and so you kind of, you do try and limit some of the jokes that you might tell, or some of the things that you might say, but this was just 30 people in a room, all sitting two meters apart from each other, it wasn't going to be recorded, it wasn't going to be live streamed, and so I thought I'd have a bit of fun with it. So I started by saying, you know, in this church, we're always really interested in like pushing the boundaries of theology and making sure that we don't just do the same old things every single week. But we're always looking into, you know, where are we? Do we need to reinterpret the Bible in a different way? And that is why I'd like to speak to you this morning on why we should bring back slavery. And then I proceeded to spend the next 10 minutes pulling all these verses out of context from the Old and the New Testament. Things like slaves obey your masters, masters treat your slaves well. There's one in Deuteronomy about where you should go and get slaves from, get them from the next country over. And then when you die, pass those slaves down to your child. And I talked about this for about 10 minutes. And then I got to the end and said, who's with me? And there were some people in the room who'd kind of got where I was going with this. And there were some really hadn't and there was a bit of like nervous laughter for a bit until I said so obviously we don't do that with slavery so why do we do it about homosexuality when you can pull far more verses out of context to come up with a pro-slavery position than you can pull them out of context to justify an anti-LGBT 
position. I then went through what's called the clobber verses. There are six verses. Six verses in the whole of the Bible, which are the ones that people go back to all the time. We haven't got time for me to go through all those six now, but if you want to write one of the questions, Nath, talk about the clobber text verses, and I could probably talk about those in the 10-minute Q&A that we will have after. But six verses. There are one in, one in Genesis, two in Leviticus, one in Romans, and two in Paul's letters in the New Testament. We talked about that. I talked about trajectory hermeneutics, which is a big word, a big phrase, to talk about the direction of travel. And that's why we don't talk about slavery in that context. We look at the direction in which the Bible is going, this general trajectory towards love, and we say, you've got to move that on as well from the end of where the Bible was written. 2,000 years later, you take that trajectory, that movement that always moves and always bends towards love and justice. And you keep that going for a couple of thousand years and you end up in a position where, of course, you're anti-slavery. Of course you are. And how you should also apply that to LGBT rights. We haven't got time to talk about that. And there is a lot more I could say on all of those things, but I always think that the worry with this topic is that we spend too much time sometimes talking about the theology and too much time looking at things like trajectory hermeneutics and discrediting those clobber texts and everything. Because Dean has just showed us this is about people. It's real people. I'm looking at a lot of you now. I don't think people's minds are necessarily changed because of theology. I think people's minds are changed because of people. I grew up in a pretty standard, fairly conservative evangelical church, I guess you'd say now at the time, its theology was the same as almost every other church's theology that I knew around this issue. I grew up with all of those phrases that would be pretty triggering to some of you in the, in the congregation. You know what those phrases. And I thought that was the only way. I thought that's just what Christianity was. And what changed it for me was not reading complicated theology books. It was meeting people. And my experience of talking to lots of other people is that it's always the pastoral before the theological. That's the way it always goes for people. I'll tell you one story about a girl which who I'll call Sarah. It's not her real name. I was on the leadership team of our old church back in, in Swansea in South Wales. And what used to happen then, it was a pretty, um, I guess the congregation wasn't quite as, as fluid as a central London church. You know, people would generally come every Sunday. They'd sit in the same place every Sunday. And so as a leadership team, if new people came, we would generally pick up on them pretty quickly. We'd have a, a leadership team meeting every fortnight. And on that Monday, every fortnight, we'd sit and we'd say, hey, did anybody um, anybody see that new uh, that new couple? They came and, uh, and she was wearing a, a, a yellow coat and she sat at the front and he was wearing a blue shirt. And then somebody else would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I spotted them. Yeah, they've just moved down from this place and he's got a job in Swansea and you know and then we'd we'd then arrange 
if they'd been there for a few weeks, uh, for them to have a coffee with, um, with one of the members of the leadership team. And this lady, Sarah, she'd been there a few weeks and we did this and she sat down with, with the leader of the church and she said, look, before I go any further, I need to know I'm gay. Where does the church stand on this issue? This was probably 2003 or four or something like that, I guess. I can't quite remember the dates. It was around that time. It was well before we moved up here. And Chris, who was the leader of the church, it's a great guy. And he said, church doesn't really have a, a public position on that. Um, we don't really have a, a public position on lots of things, to be honest. We, we welcome people in. We're, you know inclusive in the way in which we we deal with people on a Sunday morning we don't really have a, a public position about it um, but if that's not enough for you if that's not enough for you to feel safe to feel welcome to be included affirmed all those words I'm really happy to speak to the church leadership team about this and so that's what he did Sarah was incredibly gracious she came to a leadership team meeting and she told us her story which was so similar to Dean's that we've already heard this morning um, Chris then produced a ton of literature um, from an affirming position and not an affirming position and, and we all read it and we discussed it as a leadership team and it was through that I think that the leadership team moved to a point of, of inclusion but my reflection on all of that stuff it wasn't on the theology although I love theology and I'm really interested in reading all this kind of stuff, my reflection was just how many of Sarah's problems were caused by the church. People who claim to follow a God of love were at the heart of a lot of hate. And so what changed my mind wasn't the theology. I wasn't convinced by the theology. Well, I was, but that wasn't what changed my mind. I just thought, I've looked at both sides and I have come to a decision that I am going to include and not exclude. That I was going to be an ally inside the church and outside the church because if I was wrong on the theology, if my interpretation of those verses was incorrect theologically, at least I was coming down on the side of love and not the side of hate. Because while we wrestle with the theology, and we'll continue to have, won't we, all these theological debates about these clobber verses and everything, I'll end with these words. Because we believe in a God of love who loves every one of us. What is Oasis's theology around this? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus was asked, and he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. I could talk for a lot more, but I've had my 10 minutes. Uh, any questions, feel free to write them down. We'll have another 10 minutes. I mean, there are so many questions. Um, 
that there is absolutely no chance that I'm going to get through all of these, even if we had 10 hours and not 10 minutes to go through it. Um, but what I would say is that we knew when we started doing this series that we would end up with a ton more questions than we could get through. Um, and so what we're going to do at the end of this, we've got another, so next week it's the, uh, at, we're marking the beginning of Lent by having an all-age service. Uh, kids and young people are going to talk to us about what don't start the clock, by the way, this is my intro, um, about what uh, Lent uh, looks like and what Lent means to us. And then we're going to end this series the following Sunday, and Dave Parr is going to um, do this same thing again. I mean, it took me almost all that time just to unwrap them all. There's an absolute ton here. Um, so what we're going to do is after we've done those three weeks of the Sunday Grill, Steve and I are going to sit down and chat, and I've kept all the questions that we didn't get to last week. I'm going to keep all the questions I won't get to this week as well and next week, and then Steve and I will just put out a, a, a short podcast um, where we just chat through some of the other questions that we haven't got to. So I was going to say, if I don't get to your question, I won't get to all of them today. Um, keep an eye out for that in the coming months. So I think I'm ready Former 10 minutes. I'd like a ready, set, go this time, Ellie. Um, I feel like I wasted, I feel like I got at least four seconds cut off me last time. Um, three, two, one, that's great. Tell us about the clover passages is the first one. Um, I'm only going to do a really short bit on this because, again, this could take the whole 10 minutes. I would like to try and get through a, a few of the others as well. I think as far as I can... Um, yeah, so I said earlier that I think there's, there are six passages that we talk about. Two of them are in Leviticus, but the Leviticus passages are part of the Levitical law, and there's a ton of other stuff around Levitical law that we don't follow now. There's one around you know, wearing uh, items of clothes made out of two different materials. There's one about keeping your hair looking tidy, which for a lot of my 20s, I definitely didn't follow that one, and a load of other things about what you can and can't do. Um, partly, they were um, because at that point, the people of Israel were engaged in warfare and so part of the reason that people wanted that the Levitical law wants people to, to for a man to lie with a woman is because a lot of your security was around how big you were and so the more kids you could have the more secure your nation was so there's a bit around that but also the fact that we um, yeah they were laws written for a certain people at a certain time and so if we are going to wear clothes of different materials we can't really hold to those two either and there's a one in Genesis Genesis 19 I think it is which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where um, uh, uh, God agrees that he won't, um, he won't get rid of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, if they can find ten good people. And so two angels go to a guy called Lot's house in a place called Sodom, and he says, you can stay here overnight. And then while they're in there, some people of the town know that they're there, and so they surround the house, and they say bring out the two angels so that we can have sex with them. Now, if you are using that as a passage for why consensual same-sex long-term relationships amongst two people of the same gender um, is wrong, then I, I, I've absolutely no idea how you can take that to mean that. Also, the other thing is that the sin of Sodom, which is this, uh, this is often referred to as, I think it's... I can't remember where it is, a bit further on in the Bible, there's a, another story where it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah where it says that the sin of Sodom was not looking after people who were in poverty. So that actually, again, is another way in which people will look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis. They'll take out that bit because they want that little bit, it's called proof texting, to back up the bit that they want to say, which is they want to be anti-LGBT. But if you just pull out this other verse from later on in the Old Testament, you could say the sin of Sodom 
was not looking after the poor people. So there's those. Then there's two in the letters that Paul wrote um, uh, in the New Testament. And again, you could pull out verses from there, which I mentioned when I did that talk, which are which seem to suggest that having slaves is okay. So if you're going to pull individual verses out of individual letters written to churches thousands of years ago, I'm not sure. You need to work out which ones you're going to pull out rather than looking at as a whole. And the last one, which Steve talked about at length, and I would really encourage you to, to go back and watch this video if you haven't seen it already, was the one from Romans 1, where again, it's talking about man shall not lie with man, and it's all, uh, there's a lot of talk about sexual immorality. But again, that is not talking about consensual relationships between people of the same gender. That is talking about a terrible old practice that used to happen in those times where people, straight men, would take younger boys um, for sexual pleasure, not actual genuine relationship between those two at all. So it bears no relevance to consensual same-sex relationships 2,000 years on. So I won't talk about that any further because there is a lot we could say. But yeah, I recommend, um, we've got a link to it, I'm sure, on our website, but Steve did a talk. Uh, if you Google Steve Chalk Pompeii, then he goes into that in a lot of, um, a lot of detail. Um, what efforts does Oasis go to to ensure in worship, speaking of God in a non-binary and not male-gendered way. Um, yeah, we, we try to do that. We, um, we don't always get it right. We change quite a lot of the lyrics of our songs to try and make them non-gendered. The last time that I had that conversation was directly before this morning, where we changed one of the lines of Praising Me Heavens. There are two different versions of it. One of them says, brothers and sisters draw near, and we decided that we wouldn't run with that one. We'd go with one that doesn't mention uh, any genders. We've done things like, there's a, um, a song called Praise Him, You Heavens. Lots of songs talk about God in a male-gendered way. And so we've written another verse to that, which we've called Praise Her, You Heavens, which talks about the feminine qualities of, of God. Um, we try when we pray to say things, we, we say God's as opposed to he's and things like that. We don't always get it right because lots of us have grown up in churches and when we're doing things like this and we're just talking off the cuff, the language that I was brought up with for the first 30 odd years of my life was to talk about he when I talk about God. And so sometimes it can be difficult even for me to think, to remember not to gender God in that way. But it is a deliberate thing that we try to do here. We try to get it right. And all I would ask is that if and when we get it wrong all the time, um, you show us a, a bit of grace around that one. And if there are other and better ways in which we can do that, genuinely do come and let us know. There's a ton of questions here around how you deal with Christians who are anti-LGBT. How do you explain that you are gay and love God to Christians who are anti-LGBT? What would your advice be for dealing with friends or churches that fundamentally differ on what they believe? There's a load of things. How do I maintain authentic relationships? I think for those of you who identify as LGBT, on this issue, first thing I would say is I think this is where allies are helpful because my experience from just chatting to a lot of people is that when you have skin in the game, when it's personal to you, sometimes it can be more difficult to have some of those conversations and some of those um, arguments with people who have got a different opinion on those things. That sometimes, to protect yourselves, it is better to stand away from those conversations. Sometimes it might be the right time to have that conversation. Other times, you might need to step out 
And sometimes you might need to step out and say, I need to sub you in on this one. I've certainly, in this church, as well as others, been involved in a few conversations where um, I've been asked to kind of insert myself into a conversation to have this, uh, to have this, um, to have that argument almost, or that discussion at least, um, because, yeah, people find it to be triggering, they find it to be difficult, that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the other thing I would say is, I, I spoke a couple of weeks ago about... Um, Brian McLaren does this thing about four stages of faith, um, and he says in that that um, that nobody is as exclusive as a stage three Christian who has moved on from some of their previous beliefs. Um, he says that if you started over here with your anti-LGBT stance, because that was the you know theology you were brought up with, and you have moved on to stage three where you believe something different now, um, Brian McLaren says that there's no uh, at that point, you can be really exclusionary of those who don't have the same thoughts as you. So you will say, I'm inclusive of LGBT Christians. I'm inclusive of people with other faith traditions, all that kind of stuff. But you can't really get your head around including those who've got a different opinion. Even if those people were exact, are now exactly where you were two years ago, three years ago. So from that point of view, sometimes the arguments I don't think can be helpful. Sometimes it is just about a matter of holding some space and taking some time. The other person that I would mention in this I, that helped me with my journey on this was a, an Anglican vicar who has since come out as gay. Uh, and I met with him, well, I got chatting to him at Greenbelt. He was a friend of a friend. And, and looking back on that story now, I just think about the amount of grace that he showed me. I sat down with him, we had a beer just with another mate, and I asked him all the, all the stupid questions, all the really obvious ones, that he would have been really well within his rights to say, go away and learn that yourself. Do some of the work, then come back and talk to me. But he didn't. He was gracious and he listened to me. And that actually, that conversation was hugely influential on me changing my approach to some of that stuff. Does the church have any relationship counselling for those who identify as LGBT+. There's quite a number of questions here about hurt, about the trauma that the church has caused over the years, a number of those things. Um, I would say a couple of quick things on that. Firstly, um, there's a level where pastoral care is helpful and then there's a level where professional care is helpful. Um, those of us who are standing up here with Orange Line Yards on or for on the leadership team, we are really happy to meet, to pray, to chat. But absolutely, there comes a point in some people's, um, some people's life and some people's experience with all of this kind of stuff where, um, yeah, professional uh, relationship counselling, those kind of things can be helpful. If that is you, then Dave was going to give us a wave at the front. Dave and I have had this conversation a number of times, and we know that there are some... We know that there are some councils out there who are great with LGBT relationships but don't understand the church. And there are some councils out there who understand the church but don't understand LGBT. And so we've had a conversation about there's a number in the UK and a couple of others that we know in the States who can do these kind of things on Zoom uh, who can help with those types of things. If that is you and you need that conversation, come and speak to us afterwards and we can hook you up with somebody. I am sorry. I am really sorry 
for all of the ones I didn't get to. But like I said, look at, keep an eye out for that podcast that me and Steve are going to record at some point in the next, well, looking at Steve's diary, four or five years. Um, <laughs> and hopefully we will get to your question at that point. I'm going to say one more thing. Somebody asked that I would read this out um, and said it was really important to them um, in their journey. John 3.16, Jesus said, Whosoever believes in me shall have eternal life. We are all whosoever's in this room. We are all whosoever's in this room. We believe in a God who loves every single one of us. A God who always calls us in. Regardless of what the church has told you. Regardless of what other people have told you, other Christians who have told you. Regardless of what we have said about ourselves. A God who always affirms, loves, includes, and calls us in. Thanks.